Uh, thanks for being sharp and, and staying standing out of reverence for God's Word. We're going to read God's Word. Uh, my name is Joel, and I'm uh, just really blessed to be able to read Scripture this morning. And so the passage is Mark 12, 18 to 27. And Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. You have a seat. Good morning, everybody. My name is Cameron one of the pastors and elders here. And yeah, what an odd passage, huh? Pretty odd. Uh, a debate between this group called the Sadducees and Jesus over this, this law from Deuteronomy that has to do with uh, a, a man dying, his brothers having to marry his wife. There's seven of them. This is, this is pretty weird. It's pretty weird. It may not be the kind of... Uh, obviously applicable kind of give me something I can use Jesus teaching that um, maybe hope for this morning but it, it, it's it's a beautiful one I'm convinced as we dive into it there's a lot for us here what this debate has to do with is belief in the resurrection which if you're a Christian if you've been a Christian any amount of time I, I hope you believe in the resurrection which is simply the idea that Jesus has defeated death one of the reasons we believe in Jesus is because we believe he is actually victorious over death. He himself raised from the dead after being publicly executed. He, he rose again. He appeared to his disciples. He ate with them. He was seen by, we're told, hundreds of people. And honestly, they're, they're, it's the only way you could, I'm convinced, it's the only way you could explain the, the advent of this thing we call Christianity actually taking, taking root and growing and becoming a dominant world force even in just a few centuries after Jesus' life and death is that he really did raise from the dead. If he did not really raise from the dead, how we are doing this now here in 2022 makes absolutely no sense. But it's not just that Jesus rose from the dead, the, the belief that the church has embraced, that Jesus taught, that the later New Testament writers elucidated on is that he too will raise you from the dead as well. Death is coming for us all, but it does not get the last word. A lot more we could say about it. There's a little more we're going to say about it in this, this message, uh, but that's, that's the, 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 the belief that's being debated here. But before we dive in, 
I want to ask this. What does belief in that day, the life to come, the resurrection, the Bible, you know, talk about it as heaven or the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation, all, these term, all this terminology works fine. What does it have to do with this life? Um, if you didn't know this, uh, something that united these influential thinkers, Karl Marx, Friedrich Nietzsche, and Sigmund Freud, was that belief in a life to come, belief in an afterlife, belief in a resurrection, belief that on the other side of whatever this, however you define this life, there is something more, something else, something better. It can only hinder us, they would say, from engaging in the real work to do in the here and now. You've probably heard Marx's famous statement that, that religion is the opiate of the people. I would argue right now it seems like opiates are the opiate of the people. Uh, maybe more so. Is belief that God is going to overcome death, is it actually dangerous? Does it actually hinder the kind of work towards progress and justice that we all hopefully want to see in this world? Commentator David Garland wrote it this way. He said, Nietzsche, Marx, Freud claimed that hope in the resurrection stifles carrying about the serious matters of this life. But they have been shown wrong by the imposed atheism of governments. We could also say, this is not his quote, I would also say we could add that they have been shown wrong by the evidence of the goods that the people of Jesus, empowered by his spirit, have uniquely contributed to human history. Now that's not to paper over all the horrible things I have done, you have done, Christians have done throughout human history. Those things are there too, but nonetheless, it is simply not the case that belief in Jesus results in quietism in this life in an uncaring disposition towards real matters pressing, on, pressing upon us. So today, Jesus is going to help us see why this is the case. And he's going to talk about some other stuff as well. So let's pray. Let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Jesus, we need you. Holy Spirit, we need you. Father, we need you. God, we need you this morning. There's a lot about this passage to me that's still enigmatic and strange. And um, Father, I just, just pray that you would fill in those gaps for all of us. Uh, Lord, help us to see exactly what you intended for your people to get from this passage. Lord, may we walk out of here a little bit more in love with you than we were when we came. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, it starts with a, a preposterous question. This group called the Sadducees came to Jesus. And um, what we have here is that, I hope you are putting this together from the last couple of weeks, we've got now, this is our third week in a row where different people have come to challenge Jesus. They've been asking him questions. Remember a few weeks ago, Jesus threw down the gauntlet in the temple. You know, he was turning over the money changer, turning over the tables, creating a ruckus. He was, he was righteously angry about what had happened to the temple system. And after that, there's a first round of questions. Josh preached on it a couple of weeks ago. They said, hey, you just did something crazy, Jesus. By whose authority are you doing this? Who gave you the right to come and mess with the way things are in the temple? And Jesus gave them a pretty enigmatic response in the form of this, uh, this parable he told. Last week, another group comes, the Pharisees and the Herodians. They come and they say, hey, Jesus, we've got a really hot-button political issue for you. This is the question. They try to trap him. They try to basically get him to lose either his credibility or his life by how he answers. We talked about that last week. So here's another question from another group. This is a group is called the Sadducees. And they come with a question that's theological in nature. So it's not 
you know, fundamental question about his authority. It's not a political question, a kind of hot button issue. It's a theology question. They're meant to try to capture Jesus in an absurdity, trying to, trying to point out that the things that Jesus believes are weird and wrong, self-evidently so. So who were these guys? We actually don't know a ton about them historically. We can say a few things confidently, though, from the ancient documentation we do have. First is this. There's a quote from, from one scholar, that they were a confederation of wealthy and powerful men, many of whom were part of the priestly aristocracy. So they're connected to kind of the priests in the temple. Um, they're uniformly wealthy, powerful. Um, there you go. They existed as a group for about 200 years. So in, in some ways, they were kind of a blip on Israel's kind of socio-religious life, uh, but they had most of their power around the time that Jesus was, was walking and just after that. What distinguished them theologically, and this is, this is why they're confronting Jesus with a theological question, is that they thought that only the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, of the Old Testament, were authoritative. Or rather, we should say they were the most authoritative, and everything else was kind of secondary and suspect. Certainly all the oral tradition that came later, they rejected all of that. Any later observance, any later tradition, they said, no, 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 just the first five books, those books of Moses. So we would also say their Judaism was fairly de-supernaturalized. They rejected belief in God's intervention in history. They rejected belief in angels or other spirits spiritual beings, and they rejected belief in the resurrection, as we're going to see here. So none of these things happen. It's kind of this almost secularized form of Judaism. Now listen to this. Several commentators pointed this out, and I thought this was just such a good observation. Isn't it curious, isn't it curious that some of the most powerful, wealthy, educated, privileged, and satisfied people in this life saw no need for a final judgment. They saw no need for a resurrection. They saw no need for a life to come. Isn't it interesting that the people who have the most, you know, sort of to lose in this life have no interest in a life to come? You know, many who have written from places of deep pain and deep tragedy and deep powerlessness have argued that for them, and I'm not, not everyone who's felt these things as a Christian, certainly, or would even necessarily think this way, but it's shocking how many who've experienced these things have argued that for them, hope of a resurrection life to come is the only thing keeping them from hopelessness. It's the only thing keeping them from complete passivity and just giving themselves over to despair. Like, what does it matter? This is nothing but misery here, just pure nihilism. Many have written that it's the only thing as well that's kept them from violent retribution. A lot of times we think of a God who, who's going to judge and who even is going to you know, create a, a resurrection life for those who are faithful to him. We think of that as something that breeds violence. But if you read like uh, theologian Miroslav Volf, he says, no, the only thing, you know, he, he, he saw all these conflicts happening in Eastern Europe. He, saw, he knew people whose families were murdered over socio-political conflict. He said, the only thing that kept us from taking our swords and going and getting revenge was the promise that justice will finally lie with God. That there is a judgment day to come. And I don't have the complete picture. I have no way to sort all this out. I don't know what's the proper response to this, but God does. 
If God is going to, and maybe he's gonna extend mercy and grace, God knows he is a merciful God. Praise God that he is. But it's up to him. There will be a day when God perfectly, righteously, sinlessly, unconfusedly, with full wisdom and grace and power and dignity, he sorts it out. If that is the case, I can lay down my sword. I can lay down my rifle. I can lay down my fist, whatever. So, yeah, yeah. Exclusion and Embrace, Miroslav Volf. That's an incredible book if you're curious to dig, dig deeper into that. <clears throat> what I would argue, what these folks would argue, is that if God will put all things right one day, it both motivates me to live as a preview in the here and now of that life to come, but it also gives me the ability to release what I can't control to this God who will have the last say. If he's good, if we can trust him, if he promises to put all things right, then we can just release it to him. So see how, it, 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 this belief in the resurrection actually protects us against these two kind of warring errors that are easy, easy to fall into. Notice as well that for these Sadducees, that they've chosen to, to sort of create a canon of scripture within the canon. They've, they've chosen their five books that kind of give them a foundation for the things they want to believe and they've excluded the rest. And I would just note this, every one of us in this room, myself absolutely included, has the temptation to cut parts out of the Bible that don't fit our agendas and felt needs. None of us are above this impulse. We won't belabor that. I just, I just want you to see that in this passage, how convenient that they were able to cut out these passages that would have taught more explicitly on these things they didn't want to be true. They weren't invested in. So that's the Sadducees. And they come with this question. Put the, go to the next slide. The question they have seems really, I'm, I'm assuming to most of us, it just seems really absurd. So they say, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And you're, we're all sitting here going, what? What is that? And that is a law. That is a law in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10, if you want to go read it for yourself. This is a law, and you're, you're reading it, and you're going, what in the world? This is so far from our cultural setting and how things work that we're just bewildered by this. All I would say about it is that this was a law uh, designed to be protective of several things. First, it, it protected widows economically, that if a husband died, there would be another husband like, guaranteed to come and supply. And you have to take into account the whole sociopolitical world in which this, this was happening to understand why a widow would need this, but she, she did need this. More than that, it protected honor within a family, and it protected Israel's land within Israel's families. So there are all kinds of reasons why this is sort of a, a necessary thing. And it says this, yeah, a brother dies, his brother is responsible to come and marry this widow and make sure that she's taken care of, make sure that the family line can continue, and so on and so forth. Now, the Pharisee, I mean the Sadducees, they're, they're, they're basically trying to point out to Jesus, like, hey, okay, yes, this is in, this is in the law. This is in one of the books they, they submit to, that they view as especially authoritative. So, if all this is true, doesn't this create just an absolute absurdity if there's a resurrection? Isn't it just absolute nonsense? If, if, if this thing we all know is true is the case, that this resurrection stuff would be the case. They're trying to catch Jesus in absurdity. 
They're trying to show him that belief in a resurrection implies all sorts of ridiculous situations that no serious thinker could possibly believe. This is a gotcha moment. Another gotcha. Everybody's coming for Jesus with the gotchas, this part of the story. Here's another one. But despite, you know, it goes on. The second brother leaves. He has no offspring. The third brother, down to seven. So this is just a ridiculous story. But the question is still fair to ask. Remarriage does, did happen. It does and did happen. So it's a valid question. The point here is that they just, they just don't really care about, you know, if they, were, if they cared about, Jesus, help us understand, how does marriage work with a resurrection? They may have asked it that way, but instead they can, can concoct this wild scenario meant to just be self-evidently obvious. Um, I remember a gotcha question. I was, uh, my, my wife helped me remember this last night, but I remember I was, it was a bad habit of mine. I was getting in all these theological debates kind of like early out of college on Facebook, which is just... <laughs> just never a good idea and I know that there's like uh, that the receipts are out there and I'm really embarrassed to go and read whatever it is that I wrote over a decade ago but I was getting in all these debates and there was a friend of mine from high school and college who was just a very very hardcore uh, atheist and very very sort of motivated to disprove people's religious beliefs and all that sort of thing um, really cool guy interesting guy but yeah we we had a lot of fun sort of clashing over these things and I'll never forget this gotcha question he posed to me, which was this. He said this, hey, you ever read the, the list of birds that you can't eat in Leviticus 11? You ever read that? I was like, probably, but <laughs> don't, have, don't have that one memorized. Uh, what is your issue with that one? He said, well, look, it's a list of birds, right? If you read down the list, guess what it includes? Bats. Bats. I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> where, where are we going with this? He said, well, we obviously know that bats are mammals. Bats aren't a type of bird. Gotcha. <laughs> Therefore, no Jesus, no God, no scripture, no resurrection. Yeah, of course, he, he was basically saying, you, you think the Bible is to be trusted, you think that it's authoritative, you think it's infallible, but they could get a basic detail of biology wrong? And of course, you know, there, there are plenty of questions to be had there and ways we understand scriptural authority and all that, but at the end of the day, the writer of Leviticus, he's just writing a list of winged creatures. That word we've translated bird, it's just winged creatures. Bats, bats are included in that. So yeah, there you go. Living in Portland, living in Portland in 2022, you, if you're out as a Christian at work or wherever else, you are probably going to come across gotchas like these from time to time. And I think Jesus is really instructive for us here in basically not panicking, not freaking out. Granted, he's the son of God incarnate. He's got some advantages over us. But just, you know, a calm ability to sort of trust God, respond graciously, patiently. For us, if we don't know the answer, just start with it. I'm sure there's an answer to that. Lots of Christians have been, lots of really smart people have been following Jesus for a couple millennia now. We're not the first ones to read these passages. We're not the first ones to come up with these questions. You just kind of start from that place. Trust God. Trust God and then go pursue your answers. So anyway, gotcha, absurd question. We've all seen them. That's what Jesus is encountering right here. 
But the heart of the question is this. Is there actually life after death? Is there going to be a resurrection from the dead? Does this matter? Does it matter for this life? Did it matter to Jesus? Jesus says to them in verse 24, he gets to the heart of it. Is this not the reason that you are wrong? (laughs) Peacemaking response there. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? So he accuses them. You don't know your Bibles with this question. implies you don't know your Bibles and you don't know the power of God. This is the heart of Jesus' response. They are wrong about this resurrection thing for at least two reasons. They don't know what the Bible teaches and insofar as they do know what the Bible teaches, they at least know this one law, they lack the right amount of trust and imagination in the power of God. And I think what he, what he gives in the next few verses are kind of speaking to each of these two realities. So first, he talks about marriage and I think the power of God. I can appeal to the power of God here. So, he says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And I just want to note, like angels in heaven, not become angels in heaven. Too many weird books and movies and things with, you know, Christians turning into like babies with wings playing harps on clouds, you know, in heaven or whatever. And this does not say that humans become angels. There's an ontological difference between humans and angels. But we become like angels in some way. So this response, Jesus is pointing out their lack of belief in the power of God and and, and stunted theological imagination. Implicit in what the Sadducees are asking is basically this assumption that, that if there's a resurrection life to come, it must necessarily function exactly like this life in every way. That there are no fundamental distinctions or differences, that things just pick up exactly as they were before. And Jesus doesn't quote scripture for them here, interestingly. He just speaks authoritatively as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. God the Son who was at work in creation before sin and death ever entered the world and the one who is going to rule the new heavens and the new earth on the other side of the resurrection when sin and death will be no more. He speaks as that person. He doesn't need to quote scripture here. He's just going to definitively speak to them here. And what he says is not that humans become angels. He's saying humans will be like angels at least in some sense. And the larger point is this. God, the God who has creative power to make countless spiritual beings, including his servants, the angels, will have no problem arranging such things for humans in the resurrection that protects and prevents these sort of absurdities from happening. And in this case, it just so happens, he says, that people getting married will not be a feature of the life to come. Isn't that interesting? Now, this might be shocking to hear to some of you, especially if you cherish your spouse, which if you're married, I hope that you do. But I, I, <laughs> there you go. I just want to clear some debris here and draw a couple of important points from Jesus' teaching. Um, first, if we pay close attention to Jesus' language, he's specifically saying that new marriages won't take place using masculine and feminine examples from his cultural setting. Men will not marry, women will not be given to be married. 
We don't want to overstep what the scriptures teach, but it, it seems like the implication here is that in, in, in a world where we're promised death is no more, remember, that's, that's the fundamental thing. This is the overcoming of death, life taken back up again, free of sin, free of injustice, free of evil, free of death, free of death. People will never die again. In that world like that, it seems that further procreation of new humans and the family structures that necessitate their care won't be necessary. I think that's the implication. Second, second, while this clearly speaks of a categorically different way for people to relate to one another, you know, where this seven-husband issue doesn't exist, that's the point he's making by bringing this up, it doesn't suggest that the relationships we've had in this life will be forgotten or deemed meaninglessness, meaningless. That's one, that's one, that was something that panged up in me when I read this this week. I was like, oh, is this going to like erase my memory of my time with my, my family here in this world or something like that? And I, I just want to say it does not say that. In fact, I, I really like what Randy Alcorn has to say in his book, Heaven. I know, um, I don't know. I, I feel like just the cover of that book alone is kind of a turnoff. It's just like glittery, glowy gold. It says heaven. It's actually a great, a, a great theological look at the new heavens and the new earth and everything that goes with it. Here's what Alcorn says. He says, heaven won't be without families, but will be one big family in which all family members are friends and all friends are family members. It's that idea that we have in the church now in part of brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and sons and daughters, like that will be made full, it will be made complete, it will be completely fulfilled. We'll have family relationships with people who were our blood family on earth, but we'll also have family relationships with our friends, both old and new. We can't take material things with us when we die, but we do take our friendships to heaven. One day they'll be renewed. Then he goes on to say, my wife Nancy is my best friend and my closest sister in Christ. Will we become more distant in the new world? Of course not. We'll become closer, I'm convinced. I fully expect no one besides God will understand me better on the new earth and there's nobody whose company I'll seek and enjoy more than Nancy's. I think that's beautiful. He's speculating there. We should, I mean, Jesus has a very short thing to say here, right? But as Alcorn's built out his theology, I, I, I tend to think he's right on this. Human relationships will deepen and deepen and deepen. And although marriage is not going to have a function in the new creation, I don't think there's any reason to think that, you know, this is some sort of severing of deep connections that we have in this life amongst the body of Christ. Just a deepening and a deepening and a widening and a widening, if that makes sense. I think that's really beautiful. A third thing we should say about what the short sentence Jesus has here, which I think is fair to say, is that this teaching, it cuts hard against the pervasive human idols of marriage and sex. Jesus neither denigrates marriage as unimportant, nor does he lift it up as the ultimate key to meaning in life or joy or happiness or whatever else. Marriage is a good gift it's an image of his love for his people, but it's not ultimate. And it's so easy in the church to make it seem as though it's ultimate. This, this passage also prophetically speaks to our culture's view of sex. 
Sex, it seems to me, is in just, it's just increasingly thought of, understood as the final arena of personal identity and expression and contentment and happiness and meaning-making. And if, if what Jesus is saying is true about the resurrection here, then we have to reject that. Neither sex nor marriage is intrinsic to, human, to humanity, to human goodness, to human flourishing, to human joy, to glorifying God. And leave it there. Flowing from that, one more point, and then we'll move on. This goes with that previous point, but that this teaching is actually deeply dignifying for single people. Hope you see that. Whether you're single by choice, by a difficult commitment to celibacy, or whatever else. And many Christian churches, possibly ours, possibly ours, need to be reminded that single believers are not second class. They aren't missing out on some essential key to thriving or maturity. Jesus himself, for example, lived the most complete and fulfilled life possible. The most, the most God-honoring, God-glorifying life possible. And he was a single man. Christianity, it really does, it really has this unique way amongst all the worldviews and philosophies, at least the ones I've come across, of, of really like dignifying both the single and the married person. And, and, and part of how it does that is through this doctrine of the resurrection. So this is not just weird theology club debate kind of thing. This actually touches on like, what does it mean to actually have the capacity to be a whole person in this life? This gives us some clues. So with what he's saying here, Jesus is inviting you and he's inviting me, he's inviting all of us, just as he's inviting the, Saris, the, the Sadducees to trust the creative power, the coherence, the goodness of God's plan for life in the resurrection. And so for us, again, I'll say it one more time, when we encounter questions that are destabilizing or scary or confusing or whatever, the answer is not to bury our heads in the sand and say, nope, not gonna listen to that, nope, nope. Avoid, avoid, avoid. No, but it's to nonetheless respond with curiosity and a desire for the truth, but all of that rooted in just a basic confidence in the power and trustworthiness of our God. Just start there. We can bring our questions to him and to one another without scandal, without being embarrassed, without the world ending. Okay. So Jesus first responds to this issue of marriage. He says, you just lack, you, you, just, you just don't trust the power of God. You don't have the imagination to see how God might work things. Or these silly games, you know, that you're trying to construct are irrelevant. But he turns to his main point in verse 26. Here we go. Here's the heart of the matter. Verse 26. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses... In the passage about the bush, how God, that's just, I love that. They didn't have, you know, scripture numbers, chapters, verses. So he says, remember the passage about the bush? Couldn't ref, you couldn't reference a chapter and verse there. Remember the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So we have chapter and verse. Jesus is quoting Exodus 3, 6. 
And he, he's using that to make his scriptural case from a book of the Bible that these guys would have recognized as authoritative for the coming of the resurrection from the dead. But it's kind of a weird argument. You see that? I mean, would you read Exodus 3.6 <laughs> and go, clearly this is speaking about the resurrection? I would not. I would not personally. I was confused by this. At first glance, it looks like he's building his argument maybe out of the, the tense of the verb, I am. I am the God of Abraham. Therefore, uh, you know, that's a, that's a you know, present, continual, ongoing thing. I will always be the God. So, but, but actually, that verb doesn't exist. There's no verb there in the Hebrew or in the Greek translation. So that's not what he's doing. What is he doing? What, how is this a compelling argument, Jesus? Well, most scholars agree. I think they're right. Jesus isn't trying to get them to see some little detail in the passage that, that clicks this idea into place. No, when Jesus quotes anything, when any of the New Testament authors do for that matter, um, they usually assume that the hearer, the reader, that's you and that's me, are going to locate it in a larger context. They're going to see it as part of the big story, either the, the, the whole book that they're writing about or, what, or even larger than that. And here's the point. He wants you to locate this. I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the story, the whole story of God's work with Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. What is this story telling? This is the story of this God working to rescue and liberate and heal and save his people that he loves from sin and evil and yes, even death itself. This whole narrative, this whole saga got kicked off with this promise after the fall about the snake crusher, right? It's gonna wound the woman's offspring, but he is going to crush its head. And as we move through the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and yes, even get to Moses and on and on and on, it's all, how is that story gonna play out? When is this snake crusher gonna come? When is the one who's finally gonna defeat this great enemy gonna come do that thing? This is the story. And the point is, if the covenants that God made with the family of Abraham could be voided by death, they wouldn't be very strong, would they? They wouldn't be very strong, would they? No, he's promising with more and more clarity over the course of the Bible to raise his faithful people to life again. If he's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he's the God of the living. New Testament scholar Larry Hurtado puts it more succinctly than that. He says, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were given God's promise in a covenant that he would bless them and be their savior and provider. It is this covenant promise to which Jesus seems to allude in his argument. And his point seems to be that God's covenant is meaningless if it's canceled by death. I think that's right. I think that's what Jesus is doing here. Has God abandoned Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Will they ever get to taste in the fullness of what God is going to do to redeem and rescue his world and his people? Yes, they will. Yes, they will. Because he's the God of the living, not the dead. Sadducees, you are wrong about this. So this is an argument Jesus is making from the character and mission of God revealed in Exodus. 
which Jesus himself is revealing and bringing to completion. And in the greatest twist imaginable to this story, we talk about it every week, but hopefully it doesn't lose its shockingness. Jesus himself is on his way to die in order to fulfill this very promise, the promises he made to those fathers. He's going to crush the snake's head by dying. He's going to face cruel rejection, heartbreaking abandonment by all who were close to him, unimaginable suffering, culminating in his very death on a Roman torture device, hung naked as a warning to anyone else to not do this stuff. If there's no resurrection, Jesus' ministry makes no sense. If there's no resurrection, why would Jesus go to die? This question is tied up in the entire purpose of Jesus' ministry. But because of God's resurrection power, that place of judgment where Jesus experiences these horrors, it actually becomes the place of forgiving grace, transforming love, death-conquering power that will make it possible to bring all of his people to the new heavens and the new earth. Sin and evil and death will have a final day. There will be a last person who dies. And how do we know that this isn't just some pipe dream? Pie in the sky, oh, that's nice. Nice opiate of the people. Because Jesus himself walked out of the tomb. Jesus could say all he wants. There's going to be a resurrection. It's just a resurrection. Hey, it's worth turning other, the other cheek. It's worth laying down your life. It's worth becoming a servant. It's worth expressing yourself in self-giving, sacrificial love to those around you. It's worth pouring yourself out because there is a life to come. He can say that all he wants, but if he didn't walk out of that grave, we should not believe him, friends. We should just get on the nihilism train or whatever and say, what does any of this matter? I'm just going to get mine for as long as I have. But if he did walk out of that tomb, everything is different. He will do what he says he's going to do. We can actually hope in that and trust in that. Despite everything, again, a church was birthed on the belief that Jesus was dead and Jesus was then alive. They were ready to die for that belief themselves, these, these disciples. Why? Because they believed Jesus, they believed the scriptures, they believed the power of God. And we should believe it too. It can change everything. The world will be reborn. If there's a creator God who can make this entire universe with his speech, he can remake it with his speech as well. The world will be remade. It will be changed into something so good that we can hardly imagine it right now. And I love those passages that describe it in the scriptures. Deeply encouraging to me. But it's coming. And if that's the case, we find that what we need for real joy and hope and human dignity and meaning and coherent ethics and purpose and meaning in life and contentment and the resources for actually doing sacrifice and self-giving love and having endurance and just love. 
We have what we need for all of these things. Because our God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. If that's true, everything will be different. And we get to be part of things being different, even now. Amen? That is our story, friends. That is why we are, that's why he hasn't just taken us up to heaven now. We get to be a preview and a foretaste of the goodness of this God in our little half-hearted, confused, broken ways. But spirit-empowered nonetheless, we get to be a preview that things will not always be this way. Sin will not always reign. Death will not always win. Injustice will not always triumph. There is a God who is going to put it all right. So we can have peace. We can lay down our swords. We can sacrifice. Because we trust him. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's pray.